This morning, I want to begin by talking to you about disappointment. If you have a hero in your life, then at some point you've recognized that your heroes disappoint you. We had this experience globally about five years ago in 2012 during the London Olympics. We encountered this guy named Oscar Pistorius, who was the first double amputee to compete in the Olympics. And he was incredible. He was so good that people began asking, is it really fair that he gets to run in those blades and not real legs? But less than a year later, Pistorius was arrested for the murder of his girlfriend. And he's in prison today in South Africa. Severe disappointment. Many of you, like me, wore Live Strong bracelets in the middle of the 2000s as we watched Lance Armstrong win Tour de France after Tour de France after Tour de France, conquering cancer along the way. But year after year, the accusations mounted up that he was doping, that he was using performance-enhancing steroids, and yet he denied it and denied it and denied it. And then finally, he came out and said, it's true. I've been cheating all along. And it colored everything that we would believed had happened. It isn't just in sports, it's in movies. Many of you, like me, are huge Star Wars fans, and you're excited there's another one coming out next month. But if you remember back in the late 90s, they announced they were doing some prequels, and they released the most terrible movie Star Wars has ever made, called The Phantom Menace. It was a glorified go-kart race, and this guy, Jar Jar Binks, whose tongue is being held right here, um, annoyed all of us. We were severely disappointed that George Lucas would introduce somebody so terrible, and I've never been so excited when a character died in a movie as I was when, <laughs> when Jar Jar Binks died. It isn't just athletes and movies, it's in culture. How many of you remember Y2K? We thought the world was going to end. We thought that our computers were going to kill us. We were afraid that nuclear bombs were going to go off right as the clock struck 12. I can remember my parents telling me, you can't go out for New Year's Eve this year because we're not sure what's going to happen. We even got this notice from Best Buy that said, remember to turn your computer off before midnight on 12:31.99." Remember how crazy we all were over Y2K? I mean, some of you guys are still eating your prepped food from that period back then. <laughs> Disappointment comes for all of us. You know, we've been in this series for the last five weeks called Becoming Courageous. We've been looking at the life of this guy named Joshua. When we first encountered him, he and this man named Caleb had this moment of insane courage when they defied everyone else in their nation and they chose to believe that God was greater than what they could see. We learned why it was that God chose Joshua to be the successor of Moses because he was a man of impeccable character. We watched as Joshua heard this message again and again, be strong and courageous. And we learned that we have life messages too. We saw Joshua last week, as, as, as uh, Joshua mentioned, that's ironic, you would pick him um, to be your story for communion. We watched as Joshua had moment after moment after moment where he chose courage, he chose trust, and he saw God reward that trust. For me, this guy, Joshua, is one of my heroes. I love this guy. He's next to Jesus, my favorite guy in the Bible. But earlier this year, I had a shocking experience involving Joshua, and it involves significant disappointment. I went to a leadership seminar with Pastor Clovis, who was just up here doing the announcements. We went to Phoenix in the middle of June. You know it has to be a good reason for you to go to Phoenix in the middle of June. But it was a great seminar. It was great content. And right before lunch that day, 
the guy came up and he said, hey, why don't you pull your Bibles open and turn with me to the book of Judges? I want to share something with you. So if, if you have a Bible this morning, open up to the book of Judges. If, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Judges is right after the book of Joshua. It's the seventh book in the Bible. And, and in the book of Judges, chapters 2, we see what happens when Joshua dies. This is kind of the end of the story that we began five weeks ago. So beginning in, in Judges, chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, this is what the man who was leading the seminar began to share with us. He said, when, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And all the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the, light, in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which was a local uh, idol that people in that area worshipped. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their forefathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he, he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. It's a really terrible ending to the life of this guy we've been looking at for the last five weeks. It's an amazing and shocking fall from those high moments we looked at just even last Sunday. And the man who was leading the seminar, he talked about all the great things that, that Joshua had done, all of the victories and the moments of deliverance, all of the great success. And he read that passage and he asked us a question. And he said, whose fault is this? Who's to blame for this great fall after Joshua's death? And he said one word to us, Joshua. It was Joshua's fault. Now at this point, I'm ticked. Like I'm angry because Joshua's my boy. He's my hero. And this guy said that it's Joshua's fault. And I go, well, he wasn't there. How can he control what happens when he's not there? It's like when somebody comes to me and says, well, this person in your church did this. I go, can I control their behavior? I can't even control my kid's behavior, much less five, 600 people's behavior. And so, so and, I'm, and I'm alive now. He's dead. How can he control what happened after he died? How on earth could this be his fault? And then I began thinking. I began thinking about Joshua's life. I'd even planned at this point to already be teaching on Joshua this fall. I'd taught on Joshua before. I've even considered writing a full-length book involving Joshua. And I started thinking about this. How could I have missed it? And Todd, he was the guy who was presenting in the seminar. He started walking us back through the life of Joshua. And he said, Moses was a success while he lived 
and after he died. The people even did greater things after Moses died. They crossed the Jordan River. They conquered Jericho. The sun stood still. He said, and that's because wherever Moses went, Joshua followed. We don't see any significant moment in the life of Moses where Joshua's not there. He's there when the Ten Commandments come down. He's there when Moses goes into the temple to speak with the Lord, the tabernacle, and his face shines. Joshua is there. He said, but as soon as Moses passes the leadership over to Joshua, Joshua has no Joshua. Moses had Joshua, and so his legacy was greater after he died. But when Joshua dies, there is no one that Joshua has trained and raised up. So the people depart from God and all of the accomplishments that Joshua saw, they ended with him. This morning, as we conclude this series, I want to talk to you about legacy. Because I believe this, that your legacy is not in what you have done, but in who you have reproduced. Your legacy is not in what you accomplish in this life while your heart is beating in your chest. Your legacy is in who you have reproduced and what they do once you're gone. This morning, I want you to repeat three words after me. I'm gonna die. Okay, let's do it again. I'm gonna die. One more time. I'm gonna die. Now, for those of you who said Scott's gonna die, you're funny. (laughs) We're all gonna die. It's not a matter of if, but when. And you will, like Joshua, have a moment where you're gone and we all get to see who remain what your legacy was. Because it's not in what you did while you were here. It's on who is still here after you're gone and what they do. This morning, I want to share with you what I'm calling five mental shifts we need to make to avoid a Joshua, uh, sorry, a judge's two moment. Because I don't want any of us to have happen to us what happened to Joshua, where the things that God did through you end with you. I want to see them go on. And the first shift we need to make is that we need to think like Moses, not Joshua. We need to think like Moses, not Joshua. I know for the last four weeks, I've told you all the ways where we should follow Joshua's example. This last week is the week where I'm saying don't. We need to think like Moses and not Joshua. You see, Moses didn't do life alone. Every moment where we see Moses post-crossing the Red Sea, Joshua is there. He shared each of those moments with Joshua, and he had an opportunity to influence him. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And his legacy lived on in Joshua because he did life with him. Question for you, who are you sharing life's biggest moments with? Who's sharing life's biggest moments with you? See, if you say, I'm just doing it on my own, then what you do will live within your lifetime. But if you make the conscious choice that you're going to bring someone with you into the moments that you don't see as significant, you will make those moments significant because of the influence you're having. The best reminder I have of that is my dad. My dad celebrated 35 years as the pastor of one church two Sundays ago. 
And I can tell you that the most significant moments I had with my dad were not the moments where he sat me down and taught me stuff. They were the moments I just observed. And at that point, when I was a teenager, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor, and he didn't either. But by watching how my dad did funerals, I now do funerals that way. Watching how my dad walked people through weddings, that's how I plan and orchestrate weddings. Watching how my dad walked with people through benevolence and ministry needs. Watching how my dad walked through a nursing home and ministered to people. Watching as he talked to people after a service and and asking him questions. He influenced me. And it was never a scheduled moment over coffee where he influenced me. It was all of those moments I just spent time with him. See, spending time with people is influence. And if you're a parent, you will never influence your child apart from time. And there's this myth we tell ourselves, because I'm a parent too, yeah, quality time, yeah, quality time is great, but quality time at the cost of quantity time is a loss. Because you have to just be there to have that kind of influence. You can't influence your kids through a device when they're young. FaceTime's awesome, but you're not going to shape your child to be the kind of person they need to be once you're gone through FaceTime. You have to be with them. And you have to think like Moses and not Joshua, recognizing there's a moment coming when I'm going to be gone, and what I do now determines what that moment looks like. So first mental shift, think like Moses, not Joshua. Number two, think legacy, not lifetime. Think legacy, not lifetime. Many of us this year, as we look back on this year, some of the regrets that we're going to have when the year ends is that we were so caught up in what was happening that we spent time on what was urgent, not what was important. Like you think about it, when, are you proud this year that you got, you got your email inbox to zero? Are you proud this year that you spent five or ten extra weeks, sorry, ten or, five or ten extra hours at work a week? So many of the things that we get caught up in this lifetime with don't matter. I mean, people are going to give you trophies and honors in this life, and when you're dead, someone's going to throw them in the trash. Like, I've been there. I thought this, this, this morning, I've got these four beautiful bookcases in my office filled with books, and when I die, whenever that is, those are going to be barely picked through and thrown away or given to goodwill. They mean a ton to me but not nearly as much to anybody else. And all the things that we put our worth and value in our accomplishments in life, when they stand there as we're in a box or an urn, no one's going to read those. Because nobody reads a resume at a funeral. They read a eulogy. And it's not what the person accomplished. It's whose lives they touched and how they made them feel. Maya Angelou famously said, people don't remember what you did. They barely remember what you said. What they remember is how you made them feel. And it's a reminder that we all need to recognize to think legacy and not lifetime. One of the best examples I know of this is a guy named Matt Chandler. Matt's a pastor in the Dallas area, and we don't line up all the way theologically, but you need to know that I love reading people that I don't agree with. You should do it too. It's how you grow. If you only read people that you completely agree with, it's a very small list. It's your books and no one else's. 
And I love Matt. He's, he's been a, a, an influence on me from afar in specific ways. But in 2009, while he was sitting at his dinner table with his family around this time of year, Thanksgiving, Matt collapsed and had a seizure. And they discovered that he had a massive tumor in his brain. And his church walked him go through chemo and radiation, unsure if he was going to live. And during this time, I watched Matt do a video where he said these words. He said, in the kingdom of God, the man goes in the ground and the mission goes on. In the kingdom of God, the man goes in the ground and the mission goes on. All of us are going to go in the ground one day. What's going to go on when we're in the ground? See, we get to decide that by how we live now. Yeah, Matt did recover from cancer. And he's still here today. But he's living in light of this message now. He's thinking legacy not just lifetime. The third shift we need to make is that we need to think reproduction and not preservation. We need to think reproduction and not preservation. You see, when, when Joshua was living, he wasn't thinking, how do I reproduce myself in someone else like Moses did for me? His mind was caught up in all the things he had to accomplish. And yes, there were other people who saw God move in his day. It says in Judges 2 that, that there were others who lived, and while they were living, they kept believing and following. But when that generation died, the next generation had not been invested in and reproduced. Therefore, they went another way. And if we're going to think about legacy, we have to think about reproduction, not preservation, because so often, legacy becomes preservation. It becomes a museum. And I don't know about you, but I don't look forward to the day when the church is a museum. This museum opened this week called the Museum of the Bible in D.C. It's an amazing project, $500 million. But I believe there is a day coming if we don't take legacy seriously where people will have to learn about the Bible through museum and not us. See, legacy is not preservation, it's reproduction. And the church should not be a museum. It should be a dirty house where kids are coloring all over the walls. Because reproduction is happening there. And that's uncomfortable and messy. And it's not as nice and presentable, you know. You can go to a house with somebody who has five kids and the house looks very different than someone who's in their 70s and has no kids around. Not that one is better than the other, but you can just tell there are kids in one and kids are not allowed in the other. I hope church is never that way. Because a church that's a museum where kids are not allowed in because they would break stuff is a church that will look like judges too. That when we're dead and gone, they will go a different way. Not because of them, but because of what we didn't do. The Apostle Paul, as he was preparing to die, said some words to his disciple, Timothy, about the life that he tried to live, that he wanted to pass on to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he said, 
and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, what you've heard from me that I've entrusted to you, teach that to faithful men who will be able to teach others. It's this idea throughout the Bible of to the third and fourth generation. In your lifetime, you can only see the third or fourth generation. There's you, and if you have kids, your kids, and then there's their kids, your grandkids, and then if you're really blessed, your great-grandkids. That's it, though. That's as far as you can see when it comes to your legacy. And all throughout the Bible, God reminds us that our legacy directly extends to the third and fourth generation. And so God says through Paul to Timothy, this is how you are to live. You are to take your life and reproduce it in someone else who will be able to teach others who will be able to teach others. Our faith is not passed through a book. It's passed through a life. And the the future of our faith does not depend on a museum. It depends on you and me taking seriously the relationships we have and the opportunity we have to pass the faith on through reproduction. That's why as a church, we invest in children's ministry. Because we want our children to build their life on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. That's why we invest in a student ministry. I'm not sure if you know this, but over 30 minors, children 18 and under, serve on a monthly basis here at Cornerstone. Why is that? Because we've learned that if a child is just passive when they are growing up and they don't activate their own faith, they won't own it when they leave it behind. And so even in this season, while they're 8 and 10 and 12 and 16, we're giving them opportunities to put faith into practice. Nearly half of the team that went to Houston last month to serve were people under the age of 18. Because they recognize that the faith that matters is the faith that they can take action within. That's why we're so passionate about groups and reproducing leaders. And if if you're in a group right now, that's awesome. But here's what you need to know. Your group isn't going to be your group forever. Because somebody's going to lead your group. Leave your group to lead another group because we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to reproduce ourselves in others. The fourth shift we need to make is we need to think confidence in God, not insecurity. We need to think confidence in God and not insecurity. One of the biggest reasons why we don't focus on reproducing ourselves and others is insecurity. Because what happens if they're better at it than me? What happens if they are eclipsing me and what they've done, what's left for me? One of the main reasons pastors and church leaders don't reproduce themselves is because they're insecure. And not just here in America, around the world. You know, we talk about people being insecure, but pragmatically that's where it shakes out. See, if you're not investing yourself in someone else because you're afraid that they're going to do it better than you, there's a word for that. It's called insecurity. You don't believe that God can take care of you if they're better than you. And your ego is more important than your legacy. 
I got to teach this summer in Zambia at a pastor's conference, and I wanted to talk about reproduction and legacy. And I had this sense that in my gut that the reason those pastors were resisting legacy is they were afraid they would raise up a leader who was a better leader than them or a better preacher than them or a better pastor than them. And when I said that, the room went quiet. You know that, that uncomfortable quiet? It happens here from time to time when I start messing with your world. <laughs> the room fills up with a giant elephant in here. And I said, guys, you have to love your future more than you love your comfort. You have to get over that insecurity. And at the end of that message that day, this man stood up right here. His name is Christopher. He'd been the pastor of the same church for 28 years. And two weeks before this, he'd stepped down. And this man standing next to him, looking for his name tag. His name is Gift, which is an amazing name, by the way. Gift is the man that he turned his church over to. And he said, you know what? Gift is a better pastor than I am. He's a better speaker than I am. He's a better leader than I am. And he knows technology more than I know. And he said, I take joy each week in sitting in the back row and letting Gift pastor me. See, Christopher embodies the words of Fred Mansky, who said the greatest leader, and you could insert parent or coach or business person or teacher, is willing to train and develop their people to the point that they eventually surpass him or her in knowledge or ability. See, if you don't want people to be better than you, why are you the kind of person that's worth following? I want the kind of people that I invest in to be better than me so that the future is better than the present. Because if I'm the limit on how good things can be, things can't be that good. I want to raise up and develop a generation that does it even better. Even if in the meantime, I have to battle my own insecurity. The fifth and final shift we need to make is we need to think encouragement and not answers. Think encouragement not answers. See, reproducing ourselves is not about teaching other people everything we know. If you look in the life of Joshua, it's his life we first meet him in Numbers. If you look in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, there is never a moment with Moses where he sits him down and says, boy, let me teach you everything I know. He doesn't sit him down and say, boy, Take notes, I'm going to tell you how it is. There's never a moment like that. No, it's year after year and day after day of Moses continuing to show up in Joshua's world and encourage him and invest in him and develop him. Many of you today have this voice in your head that says, I can't do that. I can't develop somebody because I don't know enough. This is the most common excuse we make when it comes to developing others. I don't know enough. And it's a lie. Because guess what? You're never going to know everything. And if you have to know everything to influence somebody, you'll never influence anybody. It's not about knowledge and having all the answers. Because if you did and you had the knowledge and you had all the answers, you'd be insufferable. right? There's people that you know that think they know everything, and what are they? They're insufferable. No one wants to, no one wants to become like them, much less listen to them. 
You know how you influence people? History. The people who've influenced you the most, they're the people in your life that have been in your life the longest. Who just kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up. They didn't know more than anybody else, but you trusted them more than anybody else because history trumps everything. And Moses had more history with Joshua than anybody else. And so Moses' legacy was great. Joshua didn't have history with anybody. And so when he left it behind, there was no one. You have to make the decision in your life that you're just going to keep showing up. Parents, you're going to get to seasons in your life where you want to control your kids because they're driving you nuts. And they're going a direction you don't want them to go. In that moment, you get to choose, am I going to control my child or am I going to love my child? Those are mutually exclusive things. And if you choose to control your child, my fear is you will lose your child because none of us want to be controlled. We want to be loved. And if you love your child and you keep showing up and you keep showing up and you keep showing up and you keep showing up, I can't promise you what your child will become. I can promise you that history will trump everything else. And they'll know that you're there when things fall apart. And you'll get an opportunity to do what you've always wanted to do. See, your legacy is not about what you've done. It's about who you've reproduced. Before we conclude today, I want to share some next steps with you this morning about legacy. The first one is this. I want to challenge you to identify the roadblocks to your legacy. What stands in the way? Is it pride? Is it ego? Is it fear or insecurity? Is it your desire for control? What's the roadblock to you leaving behind a legacy that makes the future better than the lifetime you're living? Number two, I want to encourage you to allow your heroes to be human so you can be human too. We have a hard time allowing our heroes to be human. And because of it, we have a hard time being human. What's so funny I've learned over the years is that um, the people we look up to are never as perfect as we thought they were. I had to learn about a Joshua. He's still my hero. He's just a more broken hero than he used to be. And when I learned about Joshua, I'm learning about myself, that we reproduce who we are, including our flaws. If you're a parent, you know this so well. You can see your flaws in your kids, sometimes in greater magnitude. And you, you ask God for forgiveness for that. You ask them for patience with that. Number three, I want to challenge us to accept our calling as a faith transmitter. Your calling is to pass your faith on to someone else. That's how our faith has lasted 2,000 years. It's because men and women like you and me have chosen to pass the faith on to others. The faith isn't here because the Bible was preserved. Our faith is here because men and women have reproduced their faith and discipled or mentored someone else, and that person has continued to follow Jesus even when they're dead and gone. 
And as many have said, the faith is always one generation away from extinction because we're faith transmitters. And then number four, I want to encourage you to pray for God to help you identify someone you can encourage. Here's my conviction, that each of you have been placed supernaturally and strategically in a circle of friends. There are people that you know that I don't know. And there are people that I know that you don't know. And because of the relationships we've been put in, where we work, where we live, where we study, and where we play, God has put us there to influence those people. There are people that are close to you, but far from God. There are people who would never darken the door of this church, but they become the dinner at your house. And God wants to use you in their life. And if you decide that you're going to make your legacy about more than your lifetime, you're going to make it about who you reproduce your life in, not what you do. Then you can outlive your life. And you can experience a future very different than Joshua. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the lessons we've learned from the life of this man, Joshua. The lessons that are taken from the things he did well and the lessons that are taken from his failures. God, we confess that this year we've gotten consumed so many days in things that were urgent but not important. We got consumed in things that were trivial and not eternal. We put our worth and value in our accomplishments and our achievements, in the things that helped us feel better about ourselves as we compared ourselves to other people. And yet, God, we need to remember today that we are going to die one day if you don't return first. That a mission is going to go on when we're in the ground. And because of your divine wisdom and providence, you are giving us an opportunity today to shape what that mission and legacy looks like by how we live today young and old, introverted and extroverted, God, I pray that you would show us the person or people you want us to encourage. God, we feel insecure and inadequate. We think that we don't have enough of the answers and we have too many mistakes and flaws. And yet we are just the kind of people that you've been using for thousands of years to pass this faith on. And you promise us that we will never walk alone as we follow you and live in dependence on you to do what you've called us to do. May the legacy of this room be great because of how we choose to live today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.cornerstone.com prescottcornerstone.com